0: And now our feature presentation. Guess that's my cue to come on. I never know with these these days how long they're going to go on. I'm dead impressed with the fire alarm one. I have to say. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to Brooklands. Thank you for being here as ever, and thank you for supporting the trust. For those who don't know me, I'm Steve Clark. I have the pleasure of organising these wonderful evenings. Um, I was delighted and very pleased to be invited to the uh, opening of the First to Fastest uh, exhibition back in May, in fact May the 7th. And uh, When I listened to Paul giving his introduction and talk, I knew that we had to get him back here to talk to a bigger audience. and I know that um, there is a passion in what he's going to talk about tonight, and I can guarantee that you're going to enjoy what he says. Um, and now, I also know that there's some others in the audience that are involved in the air race. Now, I've not told Paul this yet, so perhaps towards the end of the evening, we can invite you to possibly say a few words. On a personal note, this is a very busy man. Uh, if you don't know, he's CEO of Dubai Airports. And I'd like to say he's flown in especially to see us tonight, but of course he has. Um, but uh, the reason for the slight delay—he had a previous engagement. So, without any further waffle from me, please, please welcome Paul Griffiths. Thank
1: you so much. Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, a very good evening to you, and thank you so much for coming tonight. And apologise for the late start. I was with my baby in the hangar just now. And I have to say, I'm so passionate about this airplane, it was really hard to separate me from it. So, uh, um, and I'm sure if you've seen it, you can understand why. It's not too many people who have the absolute luxury of, of owning such a fantastic aircraft that is now on show to the general public in this wonderful exhibition. And I'm so grateful for the Stephen, Alex, and the whole team at Brooklands who've been so generous in not only agreeing to adopt my baby into this exhibition, but also for looking after her so well. Uh, First thing I said to one of my friends when he arrived and said he was with the Harrier, is it still nice and shiny? And he assured me it is, so that's great. Now, this is a remarkable aeroplane, and my story with it is also quite remarkable, so it's my absolute delight to be able to share this with you this evening. And of course, the aeroplane was born in 1969, and it was only a uh, few months old when it participated in a fantastic event, more of which. Now, I'd like to take you back to 1969, but before I do that, I was reminded the other night when I was looking on uh, YouTube at how things have changed so enormously since then. And the context of this remarkable aeroplane, I think, was brought home when I came across a video of the 1969 motor show at Earl's Court entitled Cars for Women. And the whole thing, and and if you don't believe me, look it up when you get home. It is remarkable. It's all about cars of modest size and good controllability that were simple enough for women to drive home when the men had had so much to drink they would fail the newly introduced breathalyzer. Now, if uh, if you could see the look on my wife's face when I showed her this video that was more evidence than I ever needed to show that times have indeed changed. But if you go back to 1969, it was a remarkable time for British craft and skill. Not only in the aviation industry, but there were some other fantastic things happening too. For example, in 1969, this amazing flagship was launched and actually undertook its maiden voyage to New York. At the same time, the Harrier flew, and obviously the QE2 took a little more time than the Harrier did to get there. But it was an amazing time. And of course, one can't forget, of course, also in 1969, was the first flight of another remarkable piece of aviation engineering. So, you know, I, I, I think the Harrier being born in 1969, there was probably never a better time for the showcase of British craft and ingenuity to be uh, touted around the world. And of course, the Harrier's participation in the air race was a sales drive. It was to take the Harrier to America to show the Americans how fantastic this vertical takeoff phenomenal aircraft was, and it undertook a successful tour and Uh, actually was sold to the Marines, and uh, it's quite sad, isn't it, that the Americans are still operating our beloved Harrier in in the guise of the AV-8B, and unfortunately, it's long since gone. Anyway, so also in 1969, that's me, sitting next to my sister. Now, I'm not showing you this for any particular historic reason, or to actually... Marvel at the fact we're all still alive having eaten the food like that, that we were fed. But I'm actually more focused on the table. The table is one of those things that I think was a phenomenon in most young boys' houses. And most formica tables from the 60s, um, if you can find a perfect one now, it's quite um, unusual to do so. Because most of them suffered at this stuff polystyrene cement. Why this is not banned in our health and safety uh, conscious environment, I don't know. But it sure did take holes, uh, make holes in the Formica top. And of course, that was in the pursuit of making those wonderful things that I used to buy with my pocket money every single week. And that was those wonderful Airfix kits. And there's the Hawker P1127, which, of course, is only a few feet away from us now. That's in the 172 scale. And it it made up into quite a a simple but effective model. Very sadly, that isn't a model that was within the grasp of my creative skills at the time. It's been professionally built. And and as I said before, uh, XP984, I believe, is is, uh, one of the uh, prototypes of P1127. Sadly, I think the first two or three were crashed. with no casualties but that that one remains here uh, for everyone to see Um, and my particular journey of course started with 172 then I think it went up to 124 and of course a few years later I graduated to a one-to-one scale so uh, (laughs) it clearly started at a very early age and continued from there however the, the Harrier was the star of a remarkable event in 1969, and that was when the Daily Mail decided to put up the princely sum of £60,000, quite a fortune uh, in today's money, to stage an air race between London and New York and vice versa. And the idea was to set the fastest time between the two towers, the GPO tower, as it was called then, in London and the, uh, the, the uh, Empire State Building in New York. There are an amazing plethora of entries using all forms of different types of aviation, civil aviation, private aircraft, um, VC-10, uh, Boeing 707, air Lingus via Shannon, uh, balloons, a Spitfire, and various light aircraft. And of course, the. The uh, RAF and the Royal Navy entered the Harrier and the Phantom F4. And uh, it was quite a remarkable event. And here is the story of it.
2: The GPO Tower, London, symbol of the up-and-coming 70s, and the Postmaster General, last of a long line, is there to inaugurate the great Daily Mail air race of 1969. There, to accept a commission from him, is the niece of the 1919 pioneer, Art student Anne Orcock, like 18.
3: To ask you to take this across the Atlantic for me, and the head postmaster of New York will be awaiting you at the Empire State Building to take this to the postmaster general of the United States of America. And so I'm asking you now officially to act as a communications link between the UK postmaster general and the US PMG. Good luck, Anne, with your trip.
2: To the clicking cameras, Anne clocks out, setting the pace with a dash for the lift, which drops her at 1,000 feet a minute to ground level. Another quick sprint out into the street, through the waiting crowds and into the car, and off to the airport.
1: From now on, it's all go. So there we go. The air race, sixty thousand pounds, jet age jackpot, and then the early uh, leaders was the F4 that uh, I think flew into here and uh, burst some tyres on landing and was almost a bit nasty. But uh, anyway, they led. But it was then very soon after that the Harrier showed the way. Um, Some other interesting entries at the time was the Piper Comanche, twenty six hours and thirty four minutes. The Beagle 206, 20 hours and 23 minutes. At least that one has two engines over that big expanse of water. The Vickers Super VC-10, seven hours and 28 minutes. And I think when the aircraft flew um, uh, eastbound from New York, they, uh, they broke the rules a bit and uh, exceeded the uh, Mach number of the aircraft and then made a flapless landing, which again was fairly entertaining. It was certainly a time of daring-do, and if you did that today, you'd be in big, big trouble. (laughs) And of course, the iconic picture of my Harrier XV741 taking off from RAF St. Pancras, because the only way they could get a license was to actually license it as an RAF station for the day. And um, of course they used lots of water because this is the old coal yard which was adjacent to St Pancras station. They used lots of water to try and damp down the coal dust and put some temporary uh, decking down to try and contain it and as you can see I don't think it was that effective. Uh, In fact when the aircraft was restored there was quite a significant amount of coal dust still inside the aeroplane after 50 years quite amazing. But I think that's an absolutely classic uh, picture and wouldn't you love to see that today? You know, a vertical takeoff from central London. It would be quite something. And there it is further on in the trajectory and you can see the effect of that uh, dampening was uh, uh, useless to say the least, I think. And there's the star of the show, Tom Lecky thompson who uh, Remarkably, it came along to the uh, opening, and Tom, I think, could jump in the cockpit of my aeroplane and do the air race all over again. So sprightly, so alert, and so entertaining to, to talk to. And it was a joy to see the, the absolute expression of delight on his face when he was brought together with XV-741 after 50 years. So he was the star of the particular show on the day. And there's another shot of the aeroplane leaving London. And that's the decking on which RAF St Pancras was temporarily formed. And what a great shot that is. So atmospheric. And of course, the thing is, what happened when he arrived in the Wessex helicopter to jump into XV-741, the Uh, helicopter created just as much coal dust as the jet did and unfortunately they left the canopy open so (laughs) he was accompanied by a belly full of coal dust all the way to New York. And there another shot with the refueling probe and the uh, wing extensions. Now the eagle eyed amongst you can spot that this isn't actually X-ray Victor 741, this is X-ray Victor 744 which was the sister ship that was entered into the Daily Mail air race coming um, from west to east. And that was by squadron leader Graham Williams who piloted the aircraft. Um, fortunately my airplane was a bit quicker because going east-west at that time of year things are, uh, are quicker. But um, both Harriers made it across the Atlantic, helped by uh, multiple refuelings from Victor tankers on the way. and. Uh, That's the aircraft arriving uh, from the opposite direction in a similar configuration to my aeroplane.
4: The jump jet now approaching platform four is the Harrier bound for New York. Choking clouds of coal dust from the disused railway yard near St Pancras. At the controls, squadron leader Leckie Thompson was to set up one of the best times in the Daily Mail Transatlantic Air Race, 6 hours, 11 minutes, 57 seconds from the post office tower to the Empire State Building.
1: What a lovely film that is, it just makes you very proud to be British, doesn't it? So of course the aircraft had to earn its keep after winning the transatlantic race and it went into operational service at various locations, both here and uh, in Germany, It joined the operational uh, conversion unit at RAF Gütersloh in, in Germany for a while. and. Um, As the story unfolded, I was able to make contact with a number of uh, pilots that had flown the Harrier, including a number of captains at Emirates, our home-based airline in Dubai. Um, And I had a trail of people wanting to come and see me for spurious reasons. And then they were saying, oh, by the way, I used to be in the RAF and I flew your airplane. And so... Um, I had to cancel the rest of my day to hear all the stories. So the aircraft, I think, did did sterling service with the RAF in many guises. And um, I've got some shots of the aircraft in operational service at various locations. And then, of course, um, as time went on and the aircraft uh, came towards the end of its service life, um, it celebrated the 20th anniversary uh, in 1989 and then uh, was eventually um, then assigned down to the south coast. And on the south coast um, it went to um, the uh, Royal Navy um, station uh, down there at Gosport. And it became a ground-based carrier training aircraft to help uh, Royal Navy recruits handle the Harrier on the deck of the aircraft carriers. And one interesting thing is when it was um, uh, being used, they ran the engine and and navigated it on the deck. But they made quite a crude uh, metal plate, which was then screwed onto the throttle quadrant, so that uh, to avoid a poor engineer accidentally advancing the throttles too much and ending up... uh, flying up in the air. So, of course, during the restoration that had to come off so we got the full movement on the throttle again. So it was a ground-based carrier training aircraft Then it went into the hangar. And as you can see, it's starting to look a little tired and then it went out into the open uh, where it stayed for a while. Enter my particular story. I was trawling the internet late at night and... um, uh, my particular penchant for, for trawling the internet late at night is to look at aeroplanes and various things, honestly. And um, <laughs> one of the things I turned up was this extraordinary article. And it was a uh, Harrier jumpjet that was put on sale on eBay. Uh, and then eBay had delisted it, because despite the fact that all the weaponry had been taken off the aeroplane, Uh, they were forced to delist the item because the sale breached their rules as it was deemed to be a weapons delivery system. Now, um, I thought that this was quite an interesting story. And I thought, well, I wonder um, who's doing this and who's selling it. And I traced the story back to Selby in Yorkshire to a company called Jet Art Aviation. And I rang them up. And the conversation went something like this. Hello, um, I'm interested in that Harrier that you advertised for sale. Is it still for sale? No. Um, Have you sold it to someone else and do you think they might be interested in selling it? No. Are there any other Harriers that you think you might come across for sale? No. Is there any likelihood of any other Harrier coming up for sale? No. And, of course, you could hear that the poor guy at the other end of the phone thought I was a bit of a crank caller, and he'd had probably 80 calls that morning. Anyway, I said, look, um, uh, could I suggest that if you do find a Harrier for sale, I'd be really interested in talking to you about it. Because, I mean, I loved the Harrier from the time I built my first Airfix kit. And um, he said, all right, um, don't call me, I'll call you. (laughs) So I left my number and I didn't hear anything. So I rang him a couple of weeks later and I said, any chance of a Harrier, anything changed? No, no. And I think after about seven or eight calls, he started to think, well, if this guy's a crank caller, he must be either... A very professional crank caller, or there might be some genuine interest. Anyway, eventually the guy gave me his name, Chris Wilson, and we started to chat. And then the line went dead for a few weeks, and then suddenly I got a slightly um, excited phone call. Paul, you know, I said that uh, all the Harriers from this country have gone and there's none left. I've just found two that the MOD are trying to dispose of. And um, I think I might be in with a chance of bidding for one. And I got very interested at that point. So he said, look, so if you wouldn't mind send, sending me the money to this account, <laughs> I can bid for it. Yeah? Um, so once I found out from the bank details they were not in Nigeria, um, I actually sent in the cash in good faith and said, uh, right, okay, here's my commitment, let me see. Anyway, imagine my absolute delight when not long after that, um, I was told that not only did it look like a Harrier was coming my way, he couldn't tell me about the aeroplane, but it was actually a very special Harrier. And um, when it was confirmed, despite intervention from a local MP who was trying to block the sale and all sorts of other politics that were going on, Um, when it was confirmed that I had actually been successful in acquiring the aircraft, he then told me which aircraft it was and the rest is history, as they say. So I'd not only acquired an old jet aeroplane, I'd actually acquired a piece of British aviation heritage and history. And that really made me feel I had a most incredible responsibility on my shoulders to look after this amazing aeroplane. And it was in quite a state. This is the pictures from the at the time of the acquisition. You can see it looks very forlorn. The oleo on the, the nose gear has started to collapse. The, everything's looking a bit dour, isn't it? The, the paint is matte, the, the windshields are all um, uh, crazed. And actually, when we got the aeroplane back to North Yorkshire, we found that it had not, not one but 16 layers of paint on it because basically it had never been rubbed down. They'd just, when it needed painting, just whacked another coat on it. And of course, what that must have done to the performance with all the extra weight might have been interesting. But anyway, um, when I got the photos, I just couldn't believe um, my luck that I'd acquired a Harrier. But then I suppose the most difficult conversation was yet to come. And um, that was, um, I'd put the money down and bought a Harrier, and I had to somehow find the words to tell my wife. <laughs> 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 and, and as you can imagine, this was a particularly delicate subject to breach. And um, I, I am, a look, I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm a complete coward. And I had to wait to the comfort and safety of having, having a load of friends around at a dinner party <laughs> and with her at the opposite end of the table to actually let it slip that I'd acquired this jet airplane. And um, anyway, when she saw the airplane, fortunately, after the seven-year restoration, I think even she said, actually, I know I gave you a hard time, but it's quite <laughs> cool, isn't it? So, phew, thank goodness for that. So I had to have a few other people tasting my food for a few weeks until uh, we got over that particular thing. Anyway, so the aeroplane then uh, was put on a couple of lorries um, and then trundled up the A1 and the M1 to uh, its place in North Yorkshire. And um, the skill of the uh, lorry drivers to get the aeroplane there, because there was only six inches of clearance between the Lowest motorway bridges and the top of the tail. So they did an absolutely sterling job in extracting the aeroplane. And then we had a look to see exactly what we'd got. And the fortunate thing is, you know, we'd, they managed to get the wings off. The Pegasus 103 engine was still inside the aeroplane and looked in reasonable condition. And um, they put it on two lorries. See the F-104 Starfighter in the background. I was quite interested in that aeroplane as well. But that's another thing. I think that that conversation over the dinner table might be even more difficult. Um, So they got the aeroplane on. And then the next amazing thing was I went to Dubai Duty Free, which is um, one of the companies that obviously trades at the airport. And I sat down with the head of Duty Free, Colin McLaughlin. And I was talking to him, and, and he loves to reminisce as Colin. Uh, being from Ireland, he's never short of a few words. And um, he was telling me that he'd learned to fly. And he went up with someone um, who was in the Air Force at, uh, in Abu Dhabi. And he said, have you been taught by a military pilot? Because you, you do fly like a military pilot. And he said, yes, yes. Yeah, and he was telling me the story. And he said... Um, this chap came out on secondment from the RAF, and he was based out here, and he gave a few flying lessons. And I was very fortunate to learn with this guy. really bright and interesting chap called Tom Leckie Thompson. At that point, I spat my <laughs> coffee out and uh, spilt it everywhere, because I said, is that Tom Lecky Thompson of Air Race Harrier fame? Because I have the aeroplane. Anyway, fortunately, he still had Tom's um, email address. Tom was living in France at the time. And I got in touch with him, got an email straight back, really excited-sounding email, was really um, fantastic about, you know, I'd got the aeroplane and he was dying to see it again. Another coincidence happened. Um, Tom's daughter, Claire, um, was uh, uh, in the sales department of Virgin Atlantic when I was the commercial director, so she'd actually worked for me. And I didn't realise that connection till later on. But Claire was fantastic and took Tom up to Selby to Jet Art Aviation and sat him in the cockpit of XV-741. And I was able to tell him that this, I was getting so excited about this project that I would bring the aircraft back to a condition that he would be proud to see it. And that's how the sort of journey began. So with all these really exciting coincidences happening... This aeroplane had to be perfect. And I said to Chris Wilson of JetArt, look, you know, let's take a while to do this, but let's do it really properly. And that's what they did. And, um, of course, I have a few Corgi models of XV-741 at home now, with uh, Graham Williams on the left and Tom on the right there. And so the restoration began. This was in 2012, And you can imagine an aircraft that was made in 1969 that I had instructed to be as near perfect as you could possibly make it. Needed an awful lot of hunting around for spare parts. So it came down to the absolute last nut and bolt. And we decided at the same time that not only did we want to make it perfect and strip it down, it had been converted to a GR3 and I wanted to convert it back to the GR1 specification and the paint job and everything that the aircraft had on it when it took part in the the air race in 1969. So all the undercarriage came off and we got some new old stock parts. We managed to find uh, all sorts of different things that were either painstakingly repaired or substituted. We managed to get a GR1 nose cone on the left there And extraordinarily, we managed to find a pair of unused uh, ferry extension tips for the wings. Now, they were hardly ever fitted to the Harrier because basically they were designed to give the Harrier extra range. And they limited the combat performance of the aircraft. So they were only fitted under rare occasions. And Chris Wilson told me that was probably because they were an absolute pain to fit and they never fitted the same aircraft. You put another pair on the, on the same aircraft and they would fit differently. So we found those uh, from Hawker Siddeley Aviation in Broth, and all sorts of other parts uh, emerged. And as you can imagine, this was a very long, painstakingly, and don't tell my wife, quite expensive <laughs> process. And so things like hoses were repaired because the, the, the idea was, this is a fantastic historic airplane. And a lot of people are still asking me, will it ever fly again? Now, I think the thing is that because it's a historic aeroplane, I didn't really have the means or wanted to take the risk of making it uh, airworthy again. But the instruction was to leave absolutely everything in the aircraft and restore it as much as we can, so that if any future owner wanted to restore it to flight, they could do so. Now what we also had to do was reverse some of the modifications because of course the GR3 had additional radar equipment fitted to it and and the fin for example had a a radar sensor in it and so they had to literally strip it out and remake some of the parts for the fin to take it back to GR1 um, spec and then of course there was the issue of stripping off decades of paint. Everything was tried, all sorts of obnoxious chemicals that probably are barely legal, were tried to get these 16 layers of paint off. But nothing would shift it. But we came across this amazing company called Enviroblast. And Enviroblast, Nigel from Enviroblast, came along with his equipment and with two and a half tons of soda crystals, blasted the aeroplane and took those 16 layers of paint off under which we found this absolutely gleaming aircraft with all this this fantastic aluminium, which was in perfect condition. So the aircraft had been so well preserved by the paint, we had this incredible aeroplane, and there is uh, an example. And the good thing about the soda crystals were they removed the paint, but they left even the pencil markings that were on the aluminium underneath. It made one hell of a mess. The inside of the hangar was just like a carpet about three inches deep of the stuff. But of course, being soda crystals, all you had to do was hose it down and it basically disappeared as salt water. And we had to do things like how do we treat the heat shields from the hot nozzle section. Um, and they said, well, we could spray them silver. And I said, no, I don't think so. That will look a bit unauthentic because they're very difficult to get and of course they have been used so we decided to paint them in a gunmetal color so that they look pristine but they were actually uh, very presentable but but obviously used and not too bright and shiny there's a good sort of example of the tree trunk sample of the paint underneath which we found these 16 layers and you can see it's been various colors during its service life uh, but that's what preserved it, and there's an example of the panel on the right from which we'd removed the paint So as that aircraft uh, had the paint removed to, to reveal this wonderful handcrafted aluminium underneath now we had to decide on the paint finish for it and I went up to Selby and I think only visited the aircraft twice during its restoration but on my second visit um, Chris showed me a Harrier uh, that he just had painted. And I walked around it and I looked at it and he was saying, you know, we've done quite a good job here. And I looked at it and I thought, do you know, I'm not quite sure this is good enough for XV-741, this is a special aeroplane, it needs a very special finish. And um, I knew that at RAF Marham, there was a professional paint crew um, operated by Circo at the RAF facilities at the Tonka base there. And um, obviously, we use Circo a lot for different services at the airport. So I, I called the CEO, Rupert Soames, and I said, Rupert, um, can I ask you if you'd be interested in undertaking a rather different assignment for me? And um, Rupert, as you probably know, is related to Winston Churchill. And so he said... Wow, that's a terrific-sounding uh, enterprise, young man. I'll, um, I'll see what I can do. Anyway, the Circo boys gave me a quote that I could afford. I did ask for installments because I needed them. Had to keep it under the domestic radar, which fortunately, <laughs> unlike the radar on the, on the GR3, was very much active. And um, so they put it on the lorries once again. This Harrier's probably travelled more miles by road than every, any other Harrier. And they took it to RAF Marham, to the paint shop there. Another remarkable journey with the aircraft and its bare metal finish. Now, I have to say that I I don't know whether the story got back to Rupert Soames, the CEO, of the amount of work that the aircraft had to have done to it because I think they would have lost a massive amount of money. So, if you see him, please don't tell him. Um, But fortunately, we were able to pay for part of the paint job with the Nectar points we collected when we stopped at the BP. (laughs) So the the aircraft wound its way to Marham and eventually um, got into the paint shop. And the professionalism of the way those people painted my aeroplane was second to none. Fortunately, being ex-RAF employees, this was a work of passion. And it was love for the aeroplane that they they showed. And the transformation of the aeroplane from bare metal to the pristine example that you see in the hangar outside is down to the work that they did. And it was incredible because, of course, the fin had to be remade and they had to prime everything and put everything back together. Then, of course, there was the small part of the stencils. How on earth do you remake on a GR1 Harrier that hasn't seen service for probably 30, 40 years, all of the particular stencils. Well, down at Tangmir, where X, XV744 is, there's a wonderful guy who painstakingly researched every single label and produced a stencil set for the aeroplane, which the guys at uh, RAF Marham then painstakingly applied. So you can see here, here's the GR1 nose cone. And we decided to take the aircraft back to its original RAF light gray um, finish underneath with the camouflage of the time, fit the ferry tip extensions, and of course, all the refueling probe and everything to bring it back to exactly the specification that the aircraft was when it undertook the air race. The um, tanks were exactly the same spec as those used on a Hawker hunter, so we found a couple of those and had those uh, painstakingly restored and sprayed. And the transformation of the aeroplane. When I got the pictures through, when it was completed, you can imagine the delight when I saw what they'd done. It was just quite incredible. So here it is. The engine was left in the whole time. And then they painstakingly masked off all the panels and applied the initial primer and this is the transformation as the aircraft took layers and layers of paint. Now I apologise to any of you that had a car accident and were having your car resprayed last summer and had to wait four months for it to be done. That was because all the clear coat in the UK ended up on this aeroplane. So, so the, the masking was done very painstakingly and then as they applied the paint um, something quite remarkable happened and a lot of it had to be done by hands they had to use airbrushes on the the vents on the side of the engine and then the work of actually applying the final coat um, was then undertaken and it was just the most incredible transformation i mean look at that and um, I, I wanted that gloss finish which i think the airplane would have had early in its service career and, and it, I just think it looks fantastic. Then, of course, all the stenciling had to be done, all the signage has to be done, and a lot of research went into it. And there were lots of things like, um, well, there's a strange little white um, sticker here with a number on it, and, and lots of people were scratching their heads. And then one chap said, oh, I know what that is, that's an ICI paint code and in fact what had happened is that every single panel um, had that ICI paint code on it so again they were all researched and correctly applied using lots and lots of photographs and sketches and drawings and research on X-ray Victor 744 so every stencil is in the right font for the aeroplane as it was in 1969 and you can imagine the time and Sheer love and effort that went into creating the aircraft in the condition that you see it today. So the RF Marum team—if you've ever got a vintage aeroplane that you need painted—I can't recommend them highly enough. They did a wonderful job, and as you can see, the 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 application of the the camouflage and the way they treated the metal and everything—hopefully, it will stay that way for a long, long time to come. I, I certainly hope I don't have to have a similar. Conversation with Rupert Soames for a respray at any time because I think he might uh, uh, realize that he's uh, got a lot lot of uh, loss to recover. So the aeroplane then made its way back up the motorway and back up to uh, Jessart for final assembly on the air. And of course, this time with it in its pristine finish, we had to be incredibly careful that that there weren't any low um, lying branches or anything. But they did an absolutely wonderful job. And then, of course, when we got it back for final assembly, the wings were on that special uh, frame. And um, the whole thing just looked a million dollars. Now, I didn't see it um, after it had its paint job until May the 7th when I came back to Brooklands and saw it in in its rightful place. So that was genuinely a transformation. And as you can see... All the component parts were very carefully wrapped, um, ready for the long journey back. And the the attention to detail wasn't just on the outside of the airplane. Inside was given the same level of attention as the outside. And uh, then, of course, the big push for the final assembly was started, and they had to concentrate on the interior of the airplane. So off it went back up the motorway again, yet more miles, yet more nectar points. And um, then when it came back, we talked about the quality of the finish inside the aeroplane and the same instruction was, look, take your time, strip it down to the last nuts and bolts, just take everything and let's make it perfect. So I went up and saw the aeroplane and if you want to see the smile of someone's face when they've just had their shiny new Harrier delivered back, there it is. I was so delighted to be reunited with this wonderful aircraft. So Jettar found a lot of spares for the Harrier by searching up and down the country and found this new old stock canopy still with the latex covering on the canopy. And of course that had to be cleaned off which took quite a time. And then that's a new air brake which they had to make because the GR1 had a different air brake from the GR3. And so cleaning off the um, centuries of preservative from the new parts was quite a challenge as well. And then airlifting it in North Yorkshire in a particularly foggy morning back into its uh, uh, final home for the refit was quite a, a difficult exercise and they had to be really careful not to scratch the new paints. You can see the other Harrier GR3 in the background and a tornado behind it. Anyway, all the parts were put back together like a giant one-to-one air fix kit and eventually what emerged from the hangar was amazing. And of course, then as we started to complete the transformation of the harrier, then there was a bit of a problem. Now, I live in East Sussex and in the Ashdown Forest, and I have to say, if I ever went to Wheeldon District Council and say, I want to build a Harrier hangar in my garden, um, you can imagine the language <laughs> that I would have been received by. So I thought, I've got a bit of a problem. I don't think that's going to be possible. So what do we do with the aeroplane? And that's when we started to approach different uh, institutions up and down the country. And it was all getting a bit tricky, because some were just flat no. Some were, well, you know, why would we be interested in the Harrier? And, and some didn't even bother to answer my phone call. So we had a bit of a problem. But then very, very fortunately, I happened on uh, Alex and the team here and the reception from the Brooklands team couldn't have been different, more different, it was fantastic. And they said, yes, we would love it. We would love to create an exhibition around it. And um, so I got in touch and we had a very pleasant exchange and the rest is history because the Harrier's now here. This gives you some idea of the attention to detail. That's on the drop tanks. And every single detail has been recaptured to make it as accurate as possible. And um, it's quite phenomenal, the level of detail. And that level of detail extends to the interior as well as the exterior of the airplane. And there's the ICI paint code that you can see on there. So, the long preparation uh, began as we put the aeroplane together, and then completed it internally as well. So all the cockpit instruments came out. The ejection seat came out. Everything was stripped down to its bare (coughs) component. Parts that couldn't be repaired or uh, were replaced. We managed to get some new old stock parts like the um, flotation and survival gear, the harnesses, um, the ejection seat. The... um, And when we actually acquired the airplane the ejection seat was strangely still live which was a bit of a tricky thing I'm glad they spotted that before I sat in it for the first time Uh, and and my wife didn't know about it as well so and there's the fuel probe having been uh, painted and packed up and then we had to start the the process of um, assembling it and that was probably took just as long as the preparation up to that point the rear um, cone of the uh, GR1 is radically different from the uh, radar uh, cone of the GR3. And what, had, what happened is they had to take a mold of a GR1 that they found uh, somewhere. And then they went along to a man who has an English wheel. And I don't know what it is, everyone that has an English wheel only has three fingers on each hand. <laughs> and um, someone who usually makes motorcycle... Um, petrol tanks actually made that wonderful and completely accurate um, GR1 nose cone. It looks absolutely fantastic. And the light in the back uh, came from a Hawk, which is exactly the same specification. All the cockpit instruments came out, the radar came out, um, all of the navigation uh, kits, all the gauges, the dials, and everything was then taken down to bare metal, including the ejection seat, and then gradually. The, uh, the telltale on the front, that was 3D printed to create a new one. And then the panels were, were stripped right down and then taken back to bare metal and repainted. So if you are lucky enough to get up and see the cockpit you can see what a fantastic job the team did to restore that to pristine condition. There's the jet blast shields. The, uh, you can see all the painstaking stencils. That's the um, hot nozzle. They're impossible to find because obviously they were a much used spare, and we um, had to get some new old stock components as well for the undercarriage. One of the biggest things that was a big problem was finding tyres for the aircraft. Um, I almost had to ask Dunlop to go into their stores to find the original molds, and it was going to cost, I think, four or five thousand pounds to get a couple of sets of um, tyres made. For But fortunately, we didn't have to go to that uh, uh, extent. Uh, And Chris Wilson found some tires in the US which were promptly shipped back. And um, then the work started on kitting everything out. So you can see the ravages of time on the instruments had left their mark. But uh, that didn't uh, dissuade them. All all the components came out. They were all resprayed taken back to bare metal, and gradually the, the giant airfix kit started to re-emerge. So all of the panels and everything were, were fine. And then we, we either used the original instruments, having had them refurbished, or we were able to find exact new old stock items to change everything. And of course, at the time, the, the bills were starting to pile up, and the, uh, I was sort of dreading the postman coming in case to, you know, the, the uh, extent of the investment was revealed. And um, there's some of the uh, new parts that we able to find, the flotation devices, which were new old stock, and harnesses. A lot of stuff is just sitting around on shelves, because of course when the Harrier went out of service, a lot of the spares went to the US. But... Uh, a lot of them actually are still sitting around. So we were very, very fortunate to find a lot of the spare parts everywhere. And then gradually, um, when the aircraft came back together, then the aircraft had to be brought down to Brooklands. And so I was particularly nervous at this point because the more the aircraft had progressed, the more delicate it had become, the more uh, pristine the finish was, and the more... um, impact any potential problems would have had. So, yet again, the Harrier was put on a lorry, two lorries, in fact, and brought down the motorway to end up here. And, again, fantastic job of uh, transporting it incredibly carefully and then inching it into place, into its new resting place. So, um, there's some wonderful shots. And then, of course, when it arrived here, that was when the excitement really started and we we got a lot of press interest in it and people were asking things. And then when it ended up in the hangar, we got a professional photographer in to take some pictures. And um, I I just think the aeroplane is just looking so beautiful. And I'm so grateful for the staff here who clearly are as passionate about the aeroplane as I am. And the fact that it's now next to the replica Vimy, because, of course, uh, Orcock and Brown in 1919 had flown the Vimy transatlantic for the very first time, and that Daily Mail air race was 50 years later in 69. and, of course, we were able to put both of those aircraft together in 2019 in time for the 50th anniversary of the air race and the 100th anniversary of the... uh, Uh, first transatlantic crossing and how apt and appropriate to have the the air race winning Harrier holding that transatlantic record between the GPO Tower and the Empire State Building photographed next to Concorde and um, people coming to my office I think uh, Unfortunately, productivity at Dubai Airports has dropped enormously because people spend ages talking about the aeroplane and they see the pictures on the wall and um, it's just a a wonderful thing. So when I came and saw it for the very first time in its uh, position at the um, exhibition, it was just a wonderful feeling. So a lot of people have asked, you know, are you going to fly again? Probably not, but everything's there, so if some future caretaker of this wonderful aeroplane, wants to put it back into flying condition, that's possible. Um, And also, um, it's here, it's initially on two years. I really rather hope that Brooklands will love it, the public will love it, and I will love it being here. Because I think it's absolutely right that this wonderful example of a time when Britain had the best aviation industry in the world, it's absolutely right that this aeroplane ought to be here and loved and enjoyed by people like yourselves, by the public that come and see it. And I'm hoping that this will be, if not a long-term permanent display, it may well, hopefully, be a bequest to the nation at some stage. And, you know, when you get to my age and beyond, I'm sure you start thinking about the legacy you may want to leave, and the fact that I've managed to have the good uh, support and fortune of bringing this aeroplane back to life for people to enjoy and be reminded of this wonderful time for aviation craft and skill, then that's, that's a great feeling, I have to say. And um, the way it's been looked after here and what it looks like in that exhibition, as I hope you've seen, and if you haven't, then please make sure that you go out and have a look before before you leave tonight. It looks absolutely amazing. So um, what I'd like to do is leave the last word, not to me, but to that pilot, uh, Tom Lecky Thompson, who uh, was so enthusiastic about seeing his baby as I was uh, when he came in May. And um, I think it really sums up his words were, were just absolutely apposite for the occasion.
5: What do you think, so, Tom? There's so many the photographs of it. Said it all. Look at
1: that engine. Is that how you remember it? Yeah. Fifty years ago. Yes.
5: Yeah. Tom Lecky Thompson was overjoyed to be reunited with his race-winning aircraft and what he called his long-lost friend.
2: Look at that. Look at that. The
5: pair's relationship dates back to the 1960s, when they took to the skies in the transatlantic air race in 1969, from London to New York setting a winning time of 6 hours, 11 minutes and 57 seconds. What did you think of the aircraft, Tom, when
0: you saw it? Unbelievable. I've never seen one looking quite as smart as this. And I wish it had been like this on the actual air race day, because we'd have gone even faster. Quite honestly, it was so lovely to fly, and it it stood us in such good stead that when we then showed it off after the race, um, it was lovely. It was a privilege, actually, to be part of the team.
5: Now in what is the 50th anniversary of the race, he's also being reunited with long lost friends including Alan Miriam, who was his commander in the 1960s and remembers his flying ambition well.
4: He never seemed to get frightened about anything at all, (laughs) which was a good sign but I thought to myself, perhaps that's something a bit peculiar. (laughs) No, he was absolutely outstanding and so
1: we wouldn't have selected him to do the race without the, that background.
5: In the last seven years the record breaking Harrier has been completely restored to its former glory by the company Jet Art Aviation and now sits proudly at the Brooklands Museum in Surrey. What did you think of the reaction?
3: Tom's reaction was just awesome, really lovely to, to see that, just makes all the hard work so worthwhile. And. Uh, To put a smile on an old gentleman's face just like that is is great, he he really appreciates I think all the hard work and effort that has gone into this project.
5: The race-winning Harrier will now be visited by many and I'm sure this special visitor will be returning again very soon.
0: I never thought this would happen there's my boss over there, Alan Merriman, he said to me when I was getting ready to fly in the race and I had a soccer accident and my left knee was in plaster
2: and he said, Tommy, make your mind up. Flying or sport? I chose flying.
5: <laughs> Amy Wiltshire, Forces News, Surrey.
1: So there you go. Thank you so much for coming to hear the story of this remarkable aeroplane and all the people that have been associated with it over the years, all the pilots that I've tracked down with XV741 in their logbooks, all the people that have been so generous with their time. And as this aircraft has evolved into the beauty you see next door, it's been quite amazing, the number of stories that have emerged. If ever there was something that was meant to happen, the restoration of this aeroplane, I believe, is that very thing. Now, I think if you've got any questions, I'd be very happy to take them for a a while. I could talk about this aeroplane all night. So uh, thank you very much indeed for your time.
0: I'm going to say something, what a brilliant evening and listening to you with such enthusiasm is unbelievable. But I have to say thank you on behalf of everyone that's here this evening but also thank you for all the thousands of people that are going to see the aircraft now and for the generations to come that will see it and for your enthusiasm and I have to say probably finance. That went into saving it, and it's don't was an tell a- the wife. No, no, we won't. It's an absolute <laughs> treasure. So, on behalf of everyone, thank you very much indeed. A round of applause. <laughs> now, now, as I said in my mumbled introduction, we do have a couple of people that are involved in the air race, and the one gentleman is sitting right in front of me, who happened to be a valiant Victor sorry I'm going to get in trouble Victor refueling pilot on that very race good evening
4: sir hello Paul what a delight it was to listen to you talking about this aircraft I think it's one of the most brilliant bits of engineering one could ever have it's so different and everything about it is, is just immense and special as a Victor man I was delighted to be able to refuel Tom Leckie-Thompson as lead captain and, furthermore, do all the uh, trials of of the refuel- for refuelling because people didn't really know how much fuel it would use, how long it would go, because it didn't even have a probe <laughs> designed when the decision was made to enter the air race. So I think it's amazing that that, that is... Uh, the the way it was and I don't think that would be as easily done today as it was then and I think what you've done is brave and terrific but it's an example to other people of what can be done when you step away from rules and regulations (laughs) and do do what's right so thank you very much for that and let me just ask you one question. <laughs> There's, um, it's so different between the victor and, and, the, uh, and the harrier. I'd love to see a victor done like this. LAUGHTER <laughs> Uh, There are a few differences between the Victor and the Harrier. Uh, Some (laughs) of them quite surprising. (laughs) Uh, We could probably talk for quite a long time about...
0: We may have to have you back for another talk. There you go.
4: (laughs) (laughs) What can and and cannot be done so well. But things surprised me about the Harrier are... um, All the way across the Atlantic, I had two navigators... And heaven knows how much navigation equipment. Mm-hmm. The Harrier, one pilot only, with a far, far better navigation system mm-hmm. that could tell within half a mile across the Atlantic. So the only, the only other thing that, that I'd like to say is that the Victor was so good that if it was done the same way as you've done the Harrier, I'd love to see you do that there would be a few snags you could compare, compare sort of runway requirements mm. uh, and things like that. What would you see as the big difference about the Harrier that's so different?
1: Well, the, the Victor, I mean, as we know, I think there was an accidental flying example, wasn't there, not so long ago, <laughs> yes. um, which is, I mean, I think it's an amazing aeroplane. All the V-bombers were just incredible and, you know, we know XH558, the Vulcan. What, what a fantastic uh, thing to get that back in the air. Sadly, now that's uh, no longer flying. Um, I don't know. I've said to Chris Wilson, perhaps we ought to do another project. And maybe the way to do it is to get someone like myself to front it. And maybe if we could launch something like a crowdfunding exercise, mm-hmm. we could get a Victor owned by the people for the people, which I think would be a wonderful thing to do. So um, watch this space. Brilliant. Um, However, I've got two questions for you. (laughs) One question is, do you remember how many times the Harrier was refuelled? I think uh, I was told 17. That sounds quite a lot to me.
4: Oh dear. Really I would have to go into some detail about what you mean by refuelled
1: uh, um, in, in midair? I mean because, with, between London and yeah, New York.
4: Because the first thing is, as soon as he took off, he needed fuel urgently. Absolutely, yes. So, so we filled him up to begin with. And by the way, as the lead tanker, I didn't come on till
1: last. Right. Okay.
4: The further you get away from land, in something like a Harrier, the more fuel do you want to have on board. Indeed. Yes. So. As we got closer and closer to the midpoint, even though there was a destroyer uh, with a uh, platform on it, just in case, mm. um, the, further you, you, the further you get away from land, the more fuel you want. We were virtually in contact for the last 15 minutes, nonstop. Wow. There's another thing that was quite interesting. It it was quite tricky flying because Mm. we were used to flying for range, endurance, that sort of thing. We were flying for speed. Mm. In the middle of the Atlantic, rules on flight levels and that sort of thing were pretty tight because Mm. there's not much airways control. When we trailed our hoses, there's quite a lot of drag for a poor little harrier and, believe it or not, the Victor was actually quicker than the Harrier in that. In, and when the Harrier picked up at the basket, uh, yes. okay. it made an, a, another loss of speed. So we did what was called tobogganing. Okay. So as soon as you were in contact, very gently you'd start losing height to maintain speed. Wow. And then cruise climb again when you <coughs> disconnected. So. Uh, in in terms of how many times, I wouldn't like to say exactly, because it was Nip and Tuck, you know, when we were in the middle, we were in contact all the time. Fantastic.
0: Can I just say, we have not really introduced you, can you give everyone your name?
4: My name is Alex Pickering. Uh, I uh, was a V-bomber pilot for most of my time in the air.
0: And you were also an apprentice here? I was also an apprentice
4: on, on this particular site, at the Apprentice Training School, up the top of the uh, test hill. Yeah, And,
0: ladies and gentlemen, I think we're going to see a little bit more of Alex in the future, don't you? Thank you, sir. (laughs) Um, I think there was one other person that made themselves known to me in the audience who uh, has given me an original poster of the uh, air race, and I can't see you now. You're here, right. If you'd just like to say your a little bit of involvement
6: with the, uh, with the race. Thank you very much. First of all, I'd like to add my thanks to that. Fascinating. Makes makes restoring a classic car look really rather simple. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But uh, I wasn't involved in the military side of it. Well, Actually, a couple of things. This book, which I managed to find on the internet, written by one of the organisers, has got lots of stuff in it, including all the refuelling detail. Ah, fantastic. And the Phantom was refuelled more often than the Harrier, oh, right. not surprisingly. And it was also slightly quicker going west yeah. to east. It came into, they came into Wisley. That's parachute right. landings, yeah, uh, that's what they did, and then helicopter into London. But uh, I was involved uh, um, through friends of my parents on the commercial effort, um, that's, uh, on the Capital Airlines flight, which had a whole load of people going across, and they were actually leading the chartered jet category at one stage, until Billy Butlin was given a six-hour handicap bonus, which uh, meant that he won that particular category. Yeah. But my my humble role was to drive them from the GPO tower, two guys whose names I sadly can't remember, to the Bassey heliport, whence they flew to uh, Stansted by helicopter and off across the Atlantic. And I had to get from uh, GPO Tower to uh, Bassey Heliport as fast as possible. They were encouraging me to ignore all the tra- red traffic lights <laughs> in my humble Ford Escort. But I was only 22, and I think I already have at least one endorsement. So I, uh, <laughs> I declined. <laughs> but I did get there in 14 minutes, I think, from the GPO wow. Tower to Bassey Heliport. So That's not too amazing. bad. And they had a good run from there. But say we were beaten by Billy Batlin in the end. <laughs> Anyway, many thanks. I can recommend this book for anyone who can find it on the internet. It's out of print, written by Peter Bostock, but he was one of the main organisers of the original event. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed, Thank sir. You. Well done.
0: If, there is, if there's anyone else in the audience that was um, part of it, please say now. If not, any general questions that you'd like to ask Paul? Yes, I knew you'd, as soon as I came back up, you'd be down there. <laughs> There you go. Uh, Absolutely outstanding talk. Two very simple
1: questions. Uh, The first one: uh, How many hours of restoration, or or, or you're not sure? (laughs) Um, To be fair, I haven't really kept a record of the number of hours. But if Chris Wilson was here, he'd be able to tell you. Um, It was a seven-year program. The first five years were sourcing spares, getting everything together, getting the aircraft prep prepared, and then the final two years with a big push. Right. So uh, um, I, I think in total time terms, I've been very fortunate. A lot of people haven't charged the true cost of their time for doing this restoration, but I'm, I'm sure if Chris were here, he would tell you to the, to the decimal place exactly how many hours. It's going to be many thousands, that's for sure. And the second question, which uh,
0: maybe is similar to the first, is: uh, Can you, can you, are you allowed to tell us what it costs, or is that
1: something that you don't want to be? Uh... No. <laughs> I'd, um... Do not mean it, Your wife <laughs> is not here, yeah. I presume. Well, so. I, I think for reasons of uh, domestic harmony, I think I'd rather keep that uh, confidential. But I'm very intrigued by the suggestion of the uh, Victor project, and um, I have a question for you, if I may. Um, Could I invite you round to dinner? Um, And would would I mind... Would you mind when you table the idea of the Victor Project if I went and hid in the bedroom? (laughs) Thank you. The answer is (laughs) yes.
4: There is two answers. OK. The answer, of course, is yes, but I I must... Uh, impart to you my axorial problems uh, on this particular event because we obviously share certain difficulties she came home when I came home she said the first time in my life I've known where you are and what you're doing because we broadcast from the uh, f- from from the victors um, oh, fantastic And Jack Debanio, who I think yeah, was yeah. a latter day um, Uh, John Humphreys uh, put put us on the the radio unfortunately I was deemed to be too busy to do that so Colin Seymour who was flying the number two lead tanker
1: um, uh, was detailed to do the radio commentary Oh fantastic it's interesting isn't it because Tom said to me the thing is there were a number of bureaucrats who tried to say this was too dangerous to put an aircraft into the air across central London and have all these helicopters buzzing around and all the coal dust and everything. And they actually tried to stop it. But he said, we just decided we were gonna go anyway. (laughs) And I think that that is just something that we've lost in this country, isn't it? That ability to say, come on, let's get behind this and let's make this happen. And I think we need a bit of that back. And if there's anything I can do to get that spirit back into this country, then I will. Another,
3: another question, yes, sir.
0: I'll sit down and wait. Otherwise, I'll...
3: well, it won't be that long. Okay. Well, uh, my I'll name still... is Frank Rainsborough. Uh, I'm a member of the Hawker Association. I have a quick, what well, I hope you'll agree is a funny story, which happened in this very room, by a Sea Harrier pilot who had been arranged to come and give a talk here. Now this is uh, Commander Aid Orchard. He's been promoted to captain. I've lost track of where he is at the moment. But he stood there more or less where you are on the other side of the room. And I also add that his wife lives locally and with her her young son was a regular visitor to this museum. And she had visited the GVTOL two seater Mm. in the back room there. And she had been told by uh, an explainer, that's the word they use for these volunteers, that Harrier pilots um, had to be restricted to 5 foot 10 or, at a stretch, 5 foot 11. Now, Aid Orchard is 6 foot (laughs) 3. And so uh, she heard that story, and that evening when he came in from work, she said to him, what have you been telling me all these years? (laughs) I've been told that you you must... But be much too tall for it. But, of course, the secret of it is it's not the height. It's the distance between the knee and Absolutely. the pelvis. That yep. is the... Uh, so That's I right. also want to add that the explain. Oh, Ade Orchard said, are there any explainers in the room tonight? Because if there are, I apologise for giving this story. <laughs> Thank, you.
1: Thank, Thank you.
3: Thank you very much. And incidentally,
0: the hangar is going to be open we understand, so on your way out, if you want to wander around and look at this magnificent aircraft, it will be there for a little while. Um, Any other questions?
4: (laughs) There you go. Thank you very much for the talk.
1: When you took the project on, did you have 2019 as an end date? Absolutely not. That just came halfway through, you began to realise that it it could happen. Absolutely not, no. Um, I, I just had this dream to do this amazing project. I, when I acquired the aircraft, I knew it was going to be something that couldn 't be rushed. And um, it just happened that in 2017, I realized the hundredth anniversary of the, air, of the crossing at the Atlantic was coming up and the 50th anniversary of the race, and of course, 100th anniversary of the RAF around the same time. So I, I just decided it would be good to coincide. With, with those anniversaries and then we pushed ahead and then that's when all the help sort of started to emerge you know I think the project took a life of its own in the end and, and uh, it was just a question of being able to sign the cheque slowly enough to stop my bank account draining but uh, slow drying ink is what Absolutely right yes um, One more
0: question maybe ladies and gentlemen make this the last one because I know you're all desperate for the raffle
2: <laughs> well, good evening, Paul. Thank you very much. Brilliant talk. Thank um, you. I used to play with Harriers um, some 40 years ago. I was in the RAF uh-huh. and I was a chef actually, but we were attached in the field in Wildenrath before they moved to Grytisloe. Um And uh, we had a high old time with the Harrier boys. Um, everybody that worked with that aircraft at the time and this is back in 1974 to 77, totally believed in it mm. and it proved itself eight years later or so in, Absolutely. in the South Atlantic. Yep. Absolutely. And I actually played with them down there in South Atlantic as well for a little while mm-hmm. but um, what am I, my my little question is if the engine's in that good nick, is there any likelihood of you, if you're running it and burning the paint off the hot In the aircraft.
1: (laughs) Um, I originally discussed whether the work could be done on the Pegasus engine. The sad thing is that, as with a lot of aircraft of this particular vintage, when you acquire them, I think, I don't know if it's a legal requirement, but you don't get the records with the aeroplane. So I've no idea what the actual state of the engine is. And without taking it out, stripping it down, and spending a huge amount of money on it that's a bit tricky and discussing it with Chris Wilson I said well look at least it would be fantastic to ground run it and at that time I was thinking of having it at my house in my village in East Sussex <laughs> and um, I imagined at the village fete having a stall <laughs> I said um, ground run the harrier there's two boxes put a pound in this one if you want to hear it run put a pound in this one if you don't. And then at the end of the day, whichever collected the most money, that's what we would do. Um, And um, the thing is, though, that um, I I think he said, look, this is a very historic aeroplane, and if an engine surge or something happened and you lost the airframe, how would you feel? And so, really, that's why I've decided that we'll keep it in its pristine condition. Now, he does have another Harrier, that is capable of being ground run. And I have actually heard it. I mean, if you look on YouTube, um, he has ground run that aeroplane. So I I think maybe what we ought to do is set up some very uh, powerful speakers inside the engine bay and then have a switch inside the uh, uh, cockpit that you can press and create the illusion of uh, the ground run. So I think under my tenure, I've reconciled myself to the fact that probably the engine... Won't run, but you know who knows. You never quite know what the future may hold, and um, how crazy my ideas might get. So, watch this space, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Paul Griffiths. Super evening, Paul. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. While Tim gets the raffle machine going, I think we've got five prizes tonight, and you'll be delighted to know there is a can of WD forty.